context will be John chapter 20. I'll read the first 18 verses. I'm reading from the New American Standard. And I invite you to hear the word of the living God, following which our brother will come and preach to us. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. Verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away to their own homes, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Hebrew Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things. To well, it's great to be here. I was so excited when uh, I realized I'm driving to Bowling Green from Texas, and I realized Memphis was right in the middle. So I was so excited and made sure that I was able to do it on a Sunday and called Jordan or texted him and said, I'll be here. And uh, so uh, excited to be able to, to be here with you and even to, to preach God's word. Uh, this church has always been such an encouragement. Jordan and all of your elders um, just love when we get together, love when we get to talk. And uh, I know not just me, but uh, our other pastor, Wes, has been so encouraged uh, by Nathan and the other elders here. So thank you guys. And let's just ask God to come and, and open our eyes. Dear God, just even like you did for Mary in this text, would you just help us to see you? And would you remove the distractions and would you remove all the things that cloud our vision so that we could see you? In Jesus' name, amen. Comfort, uh, it can be defined as like the alleviation of feelings of grief and distress. So comfort's the alleviation of feelings of grief and distress. And as Jordan even prayed, in this broken world, 
were surrounded by opportunities for grief and distress. And, and so comfort is something that each one of us uh, find ourselves looking for very often. And uh, we look for it in a lot of different places, right? Sometimes uh, when, when, when we have a little bit of grief or distress, we, we try to find comfort in food. We, we try to go somewhere we like a certain kind of food and we eat it. Or maybe uh, we find comfort in exercise or uh, maybe we look for distraction and entertainment. Or maybe we throw ourselves into our work or into school thinking if we do well enough or into sports, thinking maybe I, I could find some sort of comfort from this part of my life if I can just find success in this other part of our life. But there are times where the loss is so great and the distress so deep that all the normal places that you run for comfort just don't have a chance. And, and, and you, you know the food's not going to change this and, and A is not going to change this and doesn't matter how well I do at this event or what this person thinks of me. This, this is too much. And in fact, in times of significant loss, we often feel like the only way for true comfort is through some sort of restoration. A father who lost his 25-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident once wrote, my son Eric is gone. Here and now he's gone. Now I cannot talk to him. Now I cannot see him. Now I cannot hug him. Now I cannot hear his plans for the future. That is my sorrow. A friend said, remember that he is in good hands. I was deeply moved. But that reality doesn't put Eric back in my hands now. That is my grief. For that grief, what consolation could there be without having him back you see, what this father is saying is, I cannot fathom consolation without restoration. I can't fathom experiencing a comfort for my grief that would be based on anything less than the restoration of what I've lost. Notice, at times like this, it's possible for even the promises of God to seem to fall flat. I wonder if that's ever happened for you. Have you ever felt so overwhelmed by grief, so disabled by pain, so enslaved to a certain sin or burdened by the weight of guilt that somebody reminded you of a promise of God and it just, it just, it just felt, it just didn't do it. It didn't take it away. It didn't bring you the comfort and you, you feel like, I know it should, but it's just, somehow it's not. I wonder why that is. Why is it that sometimes in the midst of the deepest and the greatest of suffering, even the promises of God seem, seem to fall flat? Is it because God's promises aren't big enough? It, it, do you hear his promise and just think, that's great, but I'd like something more than that. It's not quite enough. Well, I want you to think for a moment of some of the promises of God, right? He promises that he's gonna use everything in his people's lives for their ultimate good. He promises one day he's gonna wipe away every tear. He promises death will be no more, that all of our suffering will one day seem light and momentary compared to the glory that he has in store for us. What I'm saying is it doesn't seem like the problem is that the promises of God are too small to bring comfort to our situation. 
The problem seems, honestly, almost the opposite. It's that his promises are so big that when things go really, really wrong, we can find them very difficult to believe. Sometimes the depths of our distress and the weight of our loss seem so great that we can't imagine them ever being fixed. Sometimes you lose something that you just, you, you, you almost feel like I can't imagine being happy again. I can't imagine without having this thing back ever being able to, to smile again. And, and, and in times like this, it is possible that, that we begin to lose our hope. Our hope that one day God is actually gonna fix it all and make it all better. When you can't imagine it being better, it can be hard to hope that someday it will. John Piper describes hope as a biblical hope, as a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. So think of that definition. Without a confident expectation or desire for something good in the future, there could be no comfort in the midst of distress. That's why even the promises of God will fail to bring comfort to those who have lost their hope. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about where do we find hope? Specifically, I want us to think, where do we find hope in the darkness? Where do we find hope when everything seems lost? Where do we find hope when we feel hopeless? And in order to answer that question, I thought we'd go back and look at a story in the Bible of a woman who found herself feeling hopeless. So overwhelmed with grief, and distress and pain, she'd given up hope. The woman's name was Mary Magdalene, and and Mary Magdalene was very familiar with what hopelessness felt like. For years, she had been tormented by demons, possessed by a power that exceeded her own. She knew what it felt like to live in darkness. But then one day she met a man named Jesus and he had cast the demons out of her and he had set her free from the evil that had overwhelmed her and he brought hope into her hopeless world. And from that moment on, she decided she would follow him wherever he went because in his presence, this tortured woman felt safe. In his Light, she experienced hope and joy and peace and comfort, and she just wanted to be near him. And then, in what must have felt like a whirlwind of events, she watched as within 24 hours her entire world came crashing down. Jesus, her one source of hope in a world that she knew to be dark and broken was taken from her, whipped and mocked and hung on a cross where he suffered and died in shame. And Mary had stood there and watched the whole thing. She had even heard Jesus cry out to God. And she had waited to see if he would answer and what would happen. And the sky had gone dark and there had been no response. And so Mary had watched as they took Jesus off the cross and she had followed to see where they would lay her because as devastated as Mary was, she was also determined. She was determined that she would see his body honored. That was what she determined would would, would drive her forward. That's what would get her up in the morning. She would see the one she loves, body 
honored. And so after resting on the Sabbath in John chapter 20, verse 1, tells her she got up before it was even light. And she made her way to the tomb while it was still dark. And in the book of John, as you've been studying, you've probably seen that that darkness is often not just a descriptive word in the book of John, but it's also a symbolic word. And here it speaks to the hopelessness that she felt. And when she got to the tomb, she saw that the stone had been rolled away. But you'll see in verse 2, it says, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to him, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Notice she doesn't even look in the tomb. She doesn't go into the tomb. She sees the stone away and immediately she assumes the worst and just runs to tell John and Peter. See, that's what hopelessness does, right? Hopelessness causes us to look at a situation and to assume the worst. Instead of asking, instead of seeing the tomb, the stone rolled away and saying, I wonder if God might be behind this. Now Mary wasn't thinking that way anymore. You see, Mary assumes that God isn't at work at all, which leaves her only natural explanations for everything that happens. And her only natural explanation for the stone being rolled away is somebody stole Jesus' body. So she goes and she gets Peter and John and you heard it read how they run to the tomb and and they go inside and they see the grave clothes lying there and then the face cloth off to the side folded neatly. And in verse 8 you find out that when John saw it, he believed. And then the two of them turned around and they went home but Mary stays behind. You see Mary has lost all hope and John and Peter can go away satisfied with what they saw, but, but not Mary. Eli Wiesel talks about what it's like to lose hope. He was a, a, a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp, and he describes his first night in the camp, saying, never shall I forget that night, the first night in the camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven Time sealed. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and turned my soul to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I'm condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. That's how Mary feels. She's watched her God murdered. She's watched her dreams turned to dust. And the darkness that she sought, that she had escaped, now surrounds her once more. Peter and John could go home if they wanted to, but she refused. Her one purpose now, finding the dead body of Jesus to give it the honor that it deserved. So she stands in verse 11 outside the tomb weeping. That word for weeping, it speaks of loud wailing, alone, outside the tomb. Mary lets the anguish that's boiling up inside of her out. I wonder if you've ever experienced anything like that. The pain inside just grows and it grows and you just keep it down for so long. Maybe you're in public and something here, you hear some news and something and and you just push it down and you just hold it and all you can think in your head is, I need to get off by myself and then you finally get alone and you just let it all out and you just weep. And you almost feel like you're just trying to just like expel the pain from your body through your tears. If it would just leave. 
That's what Mary's doing. If you've ever felt that kind of sorrow, if you've ever just stood somewhere and just let yourself cry, then I want you to listen to the rest of this story because I want you to see how God responds to the heartbreak of his people. In verse 11, Mary finally gets the nerve to stoop down and look into the tomb. In verse 12, we, we see what she saw when she looks into the tomb. It says, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Isn't that fascinating, right? John and, and Peter just went to the tomb and there was no angels in it. But this is God's tender love to a weeping woman. And he says, you need angels. So he gives her angels. He says, he gives her angels to comfort her. And they ask her, they say, woman, why are you weeping? Verse 13. And she says, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Why are you weeping? It's almost like they're saying, where's your hope? Where's your hope? Now, in Mary's mind, that, those questions, they're, they're, they're pretty stupid questions. Why am I weeping? I'm weeping because I just watched the greatest man this world has ever known get hung and die on a shameful death on a cross. Where is my hope? I just saw the Messiah cry out to God, and God didn't answer him. And if God doesn't answer the Messiah, how on earth am I ever to assume he would answer someone like me? That's where my hope is at. It's gone. It's crazy. Look at what it says in verse 14. After answering the question, do you know what Mary does? She turned away. These are angels. Like, these are angels sitting in the tomb, and Mary turns away. It's as if she is saying to God, it's going to take a lot more than a couple of angels to comfort me. Her heart will find comfort in one place and one place only. She wants Jesus. And if she doesn't see him restored, she refuses to be comforted. She doesn't care if it's an angel, it's not going to comfort her. Like that father who could not imagine being comforted by anything else except for the, by anything less than the restoration of his son. So Mary refuses to be comforted by anything less than the restoration of the one that she has lost. That's the only thing that's going to comfort her. And because she has given up hope that that is going to happen, she stopped looking to God for comfort and now has decided to try to take matters into her own hands and do the best she can to honor his body. <clears throat> Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Here John is trying to emphasize how blind Mary has become. Three times he uses the word Jesus in these two verses. She just turned and looked at Jesus. It says she saw Jesus, but she didn't know it was Jesus. She's so consumed. Think about this. Mary is so consumed with finding Jesus' dead body 
that she misses the fact that his resurrected body is like standing right in front of her. He's like, whom are you seeking? Like, I'm seeking the dead body of Jesus. And she's asking the resurrected Jesus where he put it. Here's the crazy thing. We live in a culture that actually is consumed by skepticism, right? And, and, and our culture has given up hope in God and they've decided that natural explanations are the only explanation for anything. And, and our culture sees skepticism as being so smart and, and oftentimes skepticism can even appear to be like justified. But this passage comes to, to actually reveal the truth to us. Our culture would say this, Faith blinds you to reality. Skepticism is what it looks like to take the blindfold off, to deal honestly with the world. Our culture would read this story and say, John is the fool. He walks in and sees an empty tomb and believes that Jesus has risen again from the dead. Mary is the wise one. Mary is the one that recognizes that if anything is gonna take place in this story, she is gonna have to do it herself. She refuses the cheap comfort. She stops looking for what God is doing and takes things, says, I'm just gonna have to make the best of this broken situation on my own. Our culture would tell us that's wisdom. That's, that, that's the one to emulate. But this story is so beautiful because it actually shows you the very opposite is the truth. John's faith actually doesn't blind him to reality, does it? John's faith actually corresponded with reality. And Mary's skepticism is what blinds her. Her hopelessness is what blinds her. And one of the reasons we use skepticism is to avoid being disappointed, right? If you don't hope, you can't be disappointed. That's what we kind of think or what we tell ourselves. But notice, Mary's hopelessness doesn't actually keep her from being disappointed. Mary's skepticism doesn't shelter her from disappointed. What does it keep her from? It keeps her from joy. Like Mary is standing there looking at the resurrected Jesus, but her hopelessness and her skepticism have blinded her. And in an attempt to avoid being disappointed and hurt and let down even more, she keeps herself from joy. She's walling herself off and insulating herself from joy. Our culture has told us hope leads to disappointment, but here we see hope would have led to joy. Blinded by her pain, blinded by her hopelessness, blinded by her own agenda, blinded by her skepticism, Mary misses the truth even though he stood in front of her in the flesh. And I wonder how many times that's happened to us. If only Mary would have searched for what God was doing with the same intensity that she searched for Jesus' dead body, if she, only, if she would only ask herself, how is God going to fix this? If she would only clung to hope instead of giving up in despair. If Mary would have done that, then she would have realized the comfort she sought was standing right there in front of her. But she didn't. And if God would have wanted to, he could have given up on Mary 
the very same way that she had already decided to give up on him. I mean, what more could God do, right? God gave her an empty tomb. It wasn't enough. So what did he do? I'll throw a couple of angels in there. Still not enough for Mary. So what did he do? He says, tell you what, I know. I'll send the risen Christ to stand two feet in front of her and ask her who she's looking for. That will, that's the trick. That's it. Still, she doesn't see him. If he wanted to, he could have just said, you know what? I think I checked all the boxes. Like, I think this is like a reasonable demonstration of the, the truth. I think if she doesn't want to believe, if she's given up hope, if she doesn't believe in me, then I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to keep doing this. But that's not what happens. Instead of walking away, you know what Jesus does? He says one word. He says, Mary. That was it. That one word, and all of a sudden she recognized him. And John keeps her response in the original Aramaic because he wants you to hear her voice as she cries out, Rabboni! Can you imagine? Can you imagine the greatest loss imaginable turns out to be fully restored? Imagine your reaction if the greatest loss in your life turned out to be restored. We get a little taste of that sometimes, right, when you have a terrible nightmare. You ever have that? You just have this nightmare that you lost someone in your family or that something terrible had happened and it's so real and vivid in your mind and then you wake up and you like feel your bed and you like reach over and maybe you feel your spouse or you look around and you realize, I was asleep. I didn't lose it. It's still here. Mary experienced a loss greater than anything we could ever even imagine. And here she experiences it, and she experienced it in real life. It was no dream. And here she experiences its restoration. Her pain, her void, her hopelessness, all of them fled as gladness and joy just flood her heart. The impossible has happened. Mary is experiencing the comfort that she craved but had given up looking for because the one she'd lost had been restored. She realizes it's Jesus. She flings himself at his feet. She, she grasps onto him and just clings to him. You might be wondering, what, what, what happened in here? Like, what, what was it, right? Like, like, he's standing two feet in front of her and she doesn't recognize him. And then he says the word Mary and all of a sudden, like, she sees him and she clings to him. What's going on? I think here we actually get to see a picture of John chapter 10, verse 2 and 3 played out. Remember what Jesus said back then? He said, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Jesus is the good shepherd. And what Mary had failed to grasp is that the good shepherd had come to lay down his life for his sheep. And he says her name, and all of a sudden, it's the shepherd's voice. And she sees him. I want you to realize, 
everything that Mary saw happen that stole her hope really happened. In other words, like, it wasn't like a dream or it wasn't like she missed, it's not like she missed saw reality. Everything that she would have told you was why she was hopeless actually happened. Jesus really did hang and die on a cross. He really did cry out to God and God really did greet him with darkness. His body really was taken down dead from the cross. It really was laid into a tomb with the stone put in its place. The stone was really rolled away and that body was gone. All those things were realities. They happened. It wasn't like she missaw them. It's simply that she misinterpreted them. She didn't understand that no one took Jesus' life. He laid it down for his people. She didn't understand that the reason, she thought it like this, God didn't answer Jesus. If God doesn't answer Jesus as he hangs on the cross, how on earth could I ever hope he would answer somebody like me? If he wouldn't answer his own son, how would he answer a sinner, a formerly demon-possessed failure like me? But she doesn't understand that the reason he didn't answer his son on Friday was so that he could answer her Sunday morning outside the tomb. The reason his cries went unanswered were so that her tears, her tears, could be comforted. He let his son die so that he could comfort her. She didn't understand that the stone hadn't been rolled away by robbers. It had been rolled away by God himself. She didn't understand that Jesus' body wasn't missing. It was standing right in front of her. And as Mary clings to Jesus' feet, there's still an aspect of the situation that she doesn't really understand. You see, she sees Jesus' resurrection like the resurrection of Lazarus that she had just encountered a few weeks earlier. And so she clings to his feet thinking, I, he's, he's risen like Lazarus, and one day I really am going to lose him for good, but I will not let him out of my sight until that day. I will soak up every moment I have with this physical Jesus. It's like I got a second chance at life, and I'm, I'm going I'm to grasp and cling to it, and I'm not going anywhere. And Jesus comes to correct her. Because Jesus recognizes what, 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 what is happening and, and he says, don't cling to me because things aren't merely going back to the way they were before. No, from now on, they're going to be even better. And what makes them better, he says, is I am going to return to my father. And you might think, how on earth could that make them better? That doesn't sound like when, when someone's clinging to you, like when my kids are like, you know, so if someone's clinging to you, you don't say, don't worry, I'm leaving. <laughs> that's how you like get them to stop clinging to you, right? Like, uh, no, I mean, he says, but that's what he says to her. He says, don't cling to me because I'm going to return to the Father. And he wants her to hear that as good news, as a reason she doesn't have to cling to him. Instead of a reason she should cling even tighter. And of course, if you wonder why, that would possibly be good news to one of Jesus' disciples. He actually already answered that question in John 16, 7, when he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. It's better for you that I go away, that I send to the Father. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send you, send him to you. The, the Bible teaches us that, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose not just, not just you know, in a physical body like Lazarus, but he rose to never die again. And he rose to ascend to the Father so that he might send his spirit to dwell in each of his people. Knowing that his disciples were about to be scattered around the Roman world, the last thing he says to them in Matthew 28 is, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, the incarnate Jesus in the flesh on earth, he was in one place at one time, but now through his spirit, the resurrected Jesus is able to be with all of his people at the same time. Not just here in this building as we gather, but with you as you scatter to your workplaces and to your homes. Mary didn't have to cling to Jesus because what he was saying is, I am going to indwell you. You don't have to cling to me because I will indwell you. And where you go, I will be also. Now, Remember what we said earlier about comfort. The greatest losses in life cannot be comforted by anything less than the restoration of what was lost or by anything less than the restoration of what was lost. And tonight what I want you to see is that Jesus' resurrection, we have a restoration already. A restoration that exceeds anything you or I have ever or will ever lose in the future. In other words, the restoration, like when he tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, she, she says like, I know he's gonna be raised in the last day, right? But she's not very comforted by that, is she? She's kinda like, you know, I know. But it's not comforting her. And Jesus comes and says, no, the resurrection is not some distant last day resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life and I'm here. The restoration starts now. He's the first fruits of the restoration of all good things. And he's the best thing. And he's greater. The giver is greater than the gift. And the giver has been restored. And we have him. And he indwells us. Don't you see what that means? It means that whatever losses you may have, it's true. You cannot find real comfort with anything less than the restoration of what was lost when you lose something precious and powerful. But when we have Christ in us, restored, raised from the dead, we have within us already the restoration of something greater than whatever it is that we may have lost. Everything good and beautiful in this life, everything you've ever loved, it came from his mind. It was breathed out through his words, carved in his hands, held together with his grip. And you have him. There are beautiful, good amazing things in life. And do you know why there are? It's because there's a beautiful, amazing creator who gives good gifts. But in this life, we will experience the loss of those good gifts. We have them for a time and then we lose them. But our, the giver, the giver has already been restored 
and he is in you. And when you have the giver, you can endure the losses of life without giving up hope. Right? We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that living hope lives in us. And so even the greatest losses in life can be endured by clinging to the living hope within us. I want to just mention this word of comfort that he gives to Mary. I just find it such an amazing word of comfort. The first words that the risen Jesus speaks to this heartbroken woman. And he speaks them to her and he speaks them to his disciples. And you'll remember the last thing the disciples did was run away and leave him all alone. Peter denied him three times. And you know what Jesus says to Mary? He says, go and tell my disciples that I am not ashamed to be called their brother. That's what he, that's what he says. They go and, and tell my brothers. They're my brothers. He's owning it. They're my brothers. Go and tell my brothers that I am returning to my father and their father. To my God and their God. It's a word of adoption. It's a word of comfort. It's a word coming and saying, I died and rose again to adopt you into my family. And though you have denied me, and though you have, you have been blind to me, and though you didn't believe what I said a hundred times when I was alive, I'm not ashamed call you my brothers and my sisters because I died to invite you into my family and I died to bring you the comfort that you long for. I want you to think about that message. I think when I think of, we read it just a few minutes ago, 1 John 3, 1 and 2, I like to think of that message as being first implanted on John when Mary came to him. When, when you read See what kind of love the Father has lavished onto us that we should be called the children of God. When you read that, it's just like he's just, he's just, he, what do you think he's thinking about? He's thinking about that, that first time that he really, really knew it was true when Mary came and said, the risen Jesus calls you brothers. And he said he's returning not just to his father, but to your father. And John sat there and he said, behold, what manner of love the fathers lavish. Can you imagine that news? He saw the linens and he believed, but he, he still didn't even understand fully. And, and then Mary comes and she tells him, God is your father. Jesus is your brother and he's alive and he raised to make it all come true. And John just sits there and he says, behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished unto us that we should be called the children of God and we are his children now. In a world of loss, there is something you have now that cannot be taken away from you. You are his child now. You cannot lose it. And what we will be, he says, the reason the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him. 
for we will see him as he is. Please don't misinterpret the suffering and the loss in your life. The reason there's so much pain in this world is not because God has forgotten about you. It's because our world has forgotten about him. Notice the world doesn't have a, track, a good track record for treating God's children. But our God does. Look at how he treated his son. He would not let his holy one see decay, but instead he raised him from the dead because you see it was impossible for death to hold a child of God. And now the Bible tells us that the risen Jesus promises that one day he will return and when he does, he will wipe every tear away and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And I like to picture that reunion. I like to think that this reunion of Mary is like a foretaste of that reunion. It's like a little picture of what it'll be like. As our Savior finds us weeping, and he comes and he wipes our tears away, and he takes our chin and he lifts us up, and, and he says our name. The good shepherd says your name. And you see him. And in that moment, everything you've ever lost, you will find that, that all the good and all the beautiful has been restored. All that was wonderful and good, restored. As you gaze upon Jesus. And in that moment, you will, you will be like him. It says you will be like him, for you will see him as he is. That's the living hope. That's the living hope that you and I have been given through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is what the future holds for all those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus as their only hope in life and in death. So whatever you're going through right now, whatever darkness, whatever loss, whatever grief, whatever sadness or distress, I just pray that you will find comfort and the reality that the restoration has already begun, the first fruits accomplished. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, then you can know that one day the restoration will be finished. And we will see him the way Mary saw him. And, uh, and all the loss and all the pain that you wish so badly you could make go away right now will disappear forever. And, uh, and it really will feel light and momentary. And you'll just be in awe. You'll just sit there and you'll just say, I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think it was possible. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much you are the good shepherd who gave your life for your sheep. Even though we have often felt hopeless, even though we've often been distracted by our skepticism or we've missed what you are doing, you just continue to pursue us. 
and you do not stop until you call our name and we fall at your feet. Thank you, Jesus, for calling our names. Dear God, I pray even this morning that that you would speak our names and that we would hear you and that we would gaze upon your beauty and, and that we would behold you and, and be transformed even just one little degree at a time more into your image. And God, if there's anyone here that, that doesn't know you, anyone here that hasn't ever heard you call their voice, anyone here that still is blinded by pain and loss and sadness. God, even this morning, would you just call their name and would you invite them to come and to see and, and to experience and to behold the love that you have lavished upon your people that you would call us your children. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for that, God the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you did to make that possible. In Jesus' name, amen.